Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 93, The River War. Today we're off on campaign, as Amunhotep III leads his first and only military adventure. From the palace of Memphis to the deserts of Nubia, Amunhotep is going to war. This episode is brought to you by Paul Glazer and Ryan Verhuis. Paul, Ryan, thank you for your support. May Ptah Ta Tenen, father of the gods, help you to achieve wonders and build great monuments. To all listeners, please enjoy the show. Our story begins in 1397 BCE, early July. It was the fourth year under the majesty of Neb Ma'atre Amunhotep III. The year was drawing to its close, and in a few weeks' time, the king would celebrate the anniversary of his coronation. Then, the fifth regnal year would begin. It was a good time to be a pharaoh, and Amunhotep was enjoying himself immensely. At the age of 17, Amunhotep III was now firmly ensconced in power. He was physically mature, accepted by the gods, and had even become a father to a little prince, a prince named Tutmos. For all we know, these could have been some very happy days in the young king's life. Dandling his infant son on his knee, the king enjoyed the pleasures of a palace in summer. Cool breezes came off the Nile and made their way through porticos and colonnades to caress the skin of relaxing monarchs. Drinking wine from his estates, comforted by the efforts of fan-bearers, Amunhotep entertained his baby prince. Beside him, the great Queen T was a constant companion. Such an idyllic scene survives to us in traces of art. Images commissioned later in the king's reign depict the royal family at their rest, and surrounded by opulence. In one particular scene, Amunhotep and T relax on their thrones, with food and lotus blossoms piled high before them. It is a spare scene, but one that conveys the pleasure of a quiet royal life. The two rulers lounge, potbellies conveying their satiety, and the abundance with which they were blessed. This is a scene coloured by some later artistic trends, which I'll return to, but it gives us a nice sense of how the young Amunhotep and T may have felt in such early happy days. Far away from this idyllic scene, events in Nubia were taking a dark turn. Pharaoh may have been happy, but in the south, his colonial subjects were anything but. Around mid-1397, a community of Nubians became fed up with Egyptian military domination. They refused to obey, and now they had risen up in revolt. 
To put this revolt and the war that it provoked in context, we should first think about the empire which Amunhotep had inherited. For over 150 years now, the Egyptian 18th dynasty had asserted military control over the peoples and places of Nubia. Pharaohs had invaded, subjugated, and slaughtered different groups. They had destroyed armies, overawed communities, and taken men, women, and children into captivity. To solidify that rule, the Egyptians had constructed and expanded massive fortresses, some of which had been in operation since the Middle Kingdom. So Amunhotep was the heir to a legacy that dated back, with some gaps, for more than 500 years. As you can imagine, that imperial legacy created plenty of reasons for conflict. In 1397, one of those conflicts began, when a new leader arose to challenge the pharaoh. This man led Nubian warriors in a war against the Egyptian empire. There is no definitive explanation for why the Nubians chose this moment to fight. Perhaps it was an explosion of colonial tensions, pressures long building in the subjugated communities. This war could easily have been sparked by resentments inherent in the region, resentments that boiled over into an armed conflict. The result began in summer, around harvest time. That might actually give us a clue to its cause. You see, as another harvest season began, the Egyptian officials in Nubia would have been out in force. They were assessing the produce of local estates, and in particular, the heads of cattle in different villages. These officials would have been measuring taxes, possibly quite aggressively, and they would have commanded subject Nubians to present their goods to local Egyptian centres. I wonder if maybe this was the spark for the conflict. The Nubians, working for rulers that they had never met or seen, may have felt that this distant pharaoh did not deserve the products of their labour. After all, who was Amunhotep to them? He was a young man, unproven. Was he strong enough to command Nubia still? Or was he a weak leader who might give way against determined resistance? I'm speculating, but the fact that the war kicked off around the time of harvest makes me wonder if the local Nubian leaders were simply fed up with Egyptian dominance. A young, inexperienced pharaoh was the perfect target to test the Egyptians' power. When word reached Amunhotep that a revolt had begun in Nubia, he wasted no time in responding. The pharaoh ordered his advisers to muster the troops, and so the scribes went out into the communities to gather the warriors together. Incredibly, one of these scribes actually left us a testimony of this process, and we can see how, in this exact moment of history, an Egyptian army was gathered and organized. Quote, The king's scribe, Amunhotep the son of Hapu, one who is true of voice. He says, my lord showed favour to me, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Re. He put all the people under my command. They were subject to me. He put the task of counting their numbers under my control, as the king's scribe in charge of recruits. I levied the warriors of my lord, Neb Ma'at Re. My pen counted their numbers as millions. This just means a great multitude, or many. I put the warriors into their ranks, each one according to the place of their ancestors, their hometown, 
I replaced the elderly man with his beloved son. End quote. This may sound dry and unremarkable, but there is some valuable detail in this quote. The scribe tells us of a very clever form of organization, how he gathered men together and assigned them battalions depending on their place of origin. So you might have the company of Memphis, the company of Athribus, the company of Mendes, etc. Different towns and villages whose sons were brought together in a fighting force. This seems like an obvious idea, but it is a great one to hear described. Modern armies may bring people together from all over a country, a country which can be vast both in terms of the number of towns and the population in general. In the ancient world, recruitment and organization tended to be a lot more localized. This, I think, probably had a great many merits. Each battalion was filled with men who either knew each other well, or at least knew each other's general region. These warriors were likely to know or even be related to one another, so they could be counted on to bond or fight together more strongly, either out of affection or because they knew that any loss in combat was a blow to their community. They might even be relied upon to act more bravely, because any act of cowardice would be sure to filter back to their homes and families. If a man fled, his relatives would know of it, and any mother or father who learned that their son had acted cowardly, well, you can bet the sandal would come out in that situation. So the scribes of Pharaoh gathered the warriors, sorted them into battalions, and arranged their training, all based around their hometown. Soon, Pharaoh's army was ready. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In August 1397, Amunhotep III and his warriors set off to make war on Nubia. Far to the south, their enemy had been preparing. Weeks had passed since the initial news. Now, it was time for action. The king set off upriver aboard a grand ship called Meri Amun, aka the Beloved of Amun. Meri Amun was an august ship, having served since the days of Amunhotep II or even earlier. It plied the waterways of Thebes, conveying pharaohs and viziers on affairs of state. 
the Meri Amun patrolled the waterways and conveyed to all who saw it an image of pharaonic majesty. In short, Amunhotep sailed in great splendor as he left Egypt for his war. The king and his fleet sailed from Thebes to Elephantine, which marked the southern border. Passing by this island, and perhaps making a quick offering to Satet or Kanum, gods of the region, Amunhotep and company departed Egypt proper. They entered into the first foreign land, the land called Wawat. Wawat, or northern Nubia, was safe territory, controlled for many years. This region was dominated by mighty fortresses which overlooked the Nile, forts like Buhen, Semna, Uranati, enormous mud-brick bastions which ruled the river valley and controlled traffic for miles around. Each of these forts greeted the royal fleet and army with splendour, and probably gave the king fresh supplies, fresh warriors, and a resounding cheer. With the pharaoh himself present on campaign, warriors and officials alike crowded the battlements to watch the ship beloved of Amun pass by. For most of them, this would be their only chance to see the living Horus in person. Passing the great fortresses, Amunhotep and his army came to southern Nubia. This was the region they called Kush. It was also the limit of their power. Up ahead, their enemy was gaining strength. Soon, conflict would be joined. But who was this enemy, this leader who dared to challenge Pharaoh? Do we actually know anything about him? Well, we surprisingly do have some idea. In a rare twist, the Egyptian records tell us quite specifically who led the Nubian rebels into war. The leader's name was Ikeni. Ikeni was a local apparently, but he must have been someone of importance or notoriety, because the Egyptians do not usually name their enemies so precisely. Naming a person in writing, especially in stone proclamations, gives them a kind of immortality, and you don't want to do that for your enemies. So there must have been something special about Ikeni, something that prompted the pharaoh to name him publicly. The only question is, what? We do not know exactly why Ikeni the Nubian was given a place in the public history of the pharaoh. It is possible that he was a former vassal, a local chief or ruler that had rebelled. The regions of Nubia, called Wawat and Kush, were actually divided up into many small vassal states or princedoms. I'll come back to that in a later episode. Essentially, different towns and districts were under the control of a local chieftain, who managed affairs on behalf of the Egyptians. Perhaps Ikeni was one of these, a local prince familiar to the administration who had rebelled against his formal masters. There's no certainty, but the fact that the records name him so specifically suggests that Ikeni was a familiar face to the Egyptian government. On top of that, the Egyptians call him Ikeni the Braggart, or Ikeni the Boastful. Again, this suggests that somebody involved in these affairs knew about the man, or at least knew his reputation. Whatever it was that made him so noteworthy, Ikeni was granted an undesirable place in the history of Amunhotep's reign. This was, in a backwards way, a little bit of an honour. Amunhotep and his fleet continued southward. They were now rapidly coming to the end of the safety zone, and approaching the land of rebellion. It was time to strategize. 
As far as we know, the Nubian rebellion was isolated to the southern regions, the region called Kush. North of Kush, the mighty fortresses were an impenetrable barrier. So Ikeni and company were probably hoping to inspire a general rebellion in their home districts. If that rebellion took hold, they might be able to repel Egyptian responses. And if they did that, they might re-establish their old freedom. If this was their goal, there were a few things standing in its way. Ikeni and company might have been ignored or left alone, were it not for three factors. Firstly, their rebellion threatened the gold mines of the eastern desert. Even if they left the fortresses alone, the mining country east of Kush and Wawat was dangerously exposed by having an enemy on its doorstep. The Egyptians, who occupied Nubia largely to gain access to its gold, would not tolerate that. Secondly, this rebellion cut the Egyptians off from an important sacred site. This was a site that we call Jebel Barkal. Jebel Barkal, or Jesser Ju, the holy mountain, was a powerful symbol. The Egyptians treated this place as the southern home of Amun, a place where the god resided when not at Thebes. Kings like Thutmose III had commissioned temples at Jebel Barkal, so a rebellion in this area threatened the sacred sites, and one of the houses of Amun himself. As you can imagine, that was totally unacceptable. A threat to a temple was a threat to Ma'at, the natural order of the world. A threat to Ma'at was a threat to reality itself. So Ikeni's rebellion endangered two important places, the lucrative gold mines and the sacred mountain of Amun. You have to wonder if he had reckoned with those two factors when he launched his rebellion. Had he done so, he might have thought twice. Finally, there was also a personal factor weighing against Ikeni's hopes. As we know, Amunhotep III was young and inexperienced. That was an advantage for Ikeni, but it also meant that the pharaoh had a personal motivation. The rebellion and the war was a chance to prove his might and his worthiness to rule. In such a situation, any rebellion, no matter how small, was almost guaranteed to earn the pharaoh's personal attention. Realistically, the king just had too much to gain. So whatever he was hoping to achieve with this war, Ikeni had seriously miscalculated. Just six to eight weeks after his revolt began, the Nubians found themselves facing the full might of the Egyptian army. It was now late August, or even early September. The new year had passed, the beginning of Amunhotep's fifth year on the throne. The pharaoh was far from home, in foreign lands. And this might have bothered him, were he not on the verge of a great personal victory. As August ended, the Nile flood was well underway. Every day the river was going higher, and the fields were rapidly disappearing under life-giving waters. As the god Hapi, or the goddess Isis, renewed the land, Amunhotep came bringing death. Around the end of the first month, the Egyptians came to battle with the Nubians. The record is brief, but it describes it like this. Quote, Ikeni the braggart was with his army, but 
He was not aware of the lion that was in front of him, for Neb Ma'at Rey Amunhotep is the savage lion who grasped with his claws the vile land of Cush. End quote. After weeks of preparation, that is the extent of Amunhotep's description of the battle. Unfortunately, this king just wasn't as verbose as some of his predecessors, and he does not recount the battle in any great detail. Fortunately, Dr. Ariel P. Kozlov, art historian, has done her homework on this, and she describes the battle in much richer terms. Quote, Wherever the battle occurred, Amunhotep III led from his royal chariot, with a driver handling the flinty-hooved engines and a shield-bearer managing a stash of arms within his car. This left his majesty free to fire with his bow. It must have been quite a terrifying sight, Amunhotep in his tall, domed war helmet, sparkling white linen, and body armour in a dazzling chariot drawn by swift, expertly trained horses, surrounded by more of the same with companies of elite archers and platoon after platoon of well-equipped infantrymen. They were led by braying trumpeters, pounding drums, and flashy standard-bearers, with weaponry constantly resupplied from horse-drawn material carts. End quote. The battle was fierce and swift. Amunhotep and his warriors surged forward against their enemy. Horses charged, pulling their chariots in a deadly momentum. Archers fired volley after volley, pummeling the foe with arrows and forcing them to cower or else be wounded harshly. Spearmen and the king's bodyguard, armed with fine swords, roared their challenge and barreled towards the Nubians. The Egyptian army, in all its panoply of war, attacked. Ikeni and the Nubians would have been lightly armoured, mostly wearing kilts and maybe some leather, but probably not. They carried small round shields, long spears and short javelins. Their archers were skilled, Nubians are famous for their archers, and they probably put up a proud defence. When battle was joined, Ikeni and company hopefully acquitted themselves well. Archers fired on each other, spearmen shoved and jousted in violent combat. Around the perimeter, chariots raced across the sand and fired upon their foes. The battle was cruel and fierce, but within an hour or two, it was done. Ikeni fell on the field, his warriors with him. The Egyptians surged around their foe, striking down those who resisted and binding those who surrendered. Every dead enemy was subject to a mutilation, as Egyptian warriors cut off the right hand of their foe to make an accurate tally of the dead. According to Amunhotep's proclamation, many thousands were killed and many more taken captive. Quote, His majesty took 30,000 men as living captives, but rather than kill them, he let them go as much as he liked. He did this so that the children of Cush were not totally cut off. End quote. 30,000 captives. Pretty unbelievable numbers. Perhaps Amunhotep was including the entire local population. That was probably not the size of Ikeni's army. Interestingly, Amunhotep claims to have released his captives to freedom, but with a very specific purpose. Apparently he did not want to denude Nubia of its offspring, and their future growth, and so he let the prisoners go as a sign of his generosity. This is an interesting decision, I think. Amunhotep III's grandfather, Amunhotep II, 
had once taken away some 20,000 prisoners from the lands of Syria, Lebanon, and Canaan. That king had removed entire populations from their towns and brought them back to Egypt as living captives, or Semer Ankh. In doing this, he created a massive demographic shift in the local area and forever changed the social history of the Nile Valley. It seems that Amunhotep III was having none of that policy. Pharaoh released his captives back to their local lives. In doing so, he demonstrated a degree of clemency that his grandfather would probably have disapproved of. But before we get too nice about all this, the king did make sure to turn some of these prisoners into an example. On one of the king's victory stelae, set up in various places from Elephantine to Sai Island, Amunhotep shows himself in the position of the victorious king. He grasps Nubian prisoners by the hair and raises his mace overhead. Frozen in time, he stands forever in the moment before he brings that mace down to crush his foes into the dust. Beneath the king, a fallen Nubian lies prostrate. Amunhotep tramples over his body. Releasing so many prisoners was all well and good, but Amunhotep was still lord of a mighty empire. He would not tolerate rebellion, and he certainly would not let his mercy act as an encouragement to future dissent. So before he let his prisoners go, he took some aside, and in front of their families and friends, publicly executed them. I think we should assume the king did this himself, as the living Horus, servant of Ma'at, and heir to figures like Namir, Amunhotep was expected to uphold the cosmic order and maintain the stability of the Egyptian kingdom. So whether he enjoyed it or not, the young king probably strode forward, mace in hand, and struck his enemies down. With blood splattering the ground and dripping from his mace, he showed to all assembled that he was the mighty Horus, the warrior god who destroys all enemies. The day of battle ended with an Egyptian victory. Pharaoh and his warriors made camp. There, they celebrated their win and gave thanks to the gods who had supported their cause. Once again, Ma'at had triumphed over chaos. The enemy was vanquished, the land was at peace once again. Sitting in his tent, or perhaps the local house that he had commandeered, Amunhotep III was satisfied. He was now a man in the truest sense. He had conquered, he had slain, he had tasted victory. Before him, all lands of the empire trembled in obedience. Those who knew his name knew him to be a master of all he surveyed. As Amunhotep rested from battle, he seems to have turned his gaze outward to look upon the lands which did not know him. He was in the middle of Nubia, far past the major bastions of Egyptian power. To the south, there were still many lands untouched. As the king savoured the taste of victory, he seems to have developed a hunger, a hunger to learn more. With victory achieved, Amunhotep III now made a curious decision. He decided not to return home just yet. Instead, he would take his victorious army and continue further south. He would go on an expedition. In September of 1397 BCE, Amunhotep III won a great victory over Nubian rebels. 
It was his first campaign, and it was successful. But it was not over just yet. The king was going exploring. On the next episode, we'll follow Amunhotep as he journeys deep into Nubia. From the desert wastelands to mysterious caverns, and to places on the Nile where perhaps no pharaoh had been before, Amunhotep would travel into exotic lands, taking with him the power and fame of the Egyptian kingdom. We'll see all of that on episode 94, The Pools of Horus, coming soon. One last thing. I've told the story of this war from Amunhotep's perspective, but I do wonder what Ikeni and his warriors were hoping to achieve, and whether they really posed any significant threat to Egypt. For all we know, this could have been a small-scale revolt, or even a revolt with good justification. The fact that Amunhotep put it down so violently does not mean that Ikeni and company were, perhaps, in the right. It's something I think about a lot when looking at Egypt's policies in Nubia. The pharaoh was, in effect, a colonizer, and it's hard to argue that the locals of Nubia were well within their rights to resist this colonization. Of course, ancient morality and views of the natural order meant that such rebellions were moments of violent confrontation. But I can't help but sympathize with the Nubians, who, for all we know, just wanted to be left alone. Every tale of victory is, on the other side, a tale of defeat. I hope that Ikeni's was worth it. The History of Egypt podcast is sponsored by Studio Headphones. Studio are a Swedish company producing high-quality wireless headphones. Their style is elegantly minimal and endlessly functional. Every battery charge gives you 10 days standby, up to 8 hours continuous play, and unparalleled audio quality. For podcast listeners, Studio will give you the very best experience. If you want a swish pair of headphones, and you want to help support this podcast, visit www.sudioSweden.com. That's studio, S-U-D-I-O, Sweden.com. Use your special coupon code EGYPT for a 15% discount on any pair. You'll help support the show and get some awesome tools to listen to your podcasts. Win-win, right? That's studiosweden.com, discount code EGYPT. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.